This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. Let's talk now about a story that is absolutely fascinating. It is one that brings in an awful lot of stuff. Brings in insurance. Brings in how repairs work. And in order to help us tell it, let's bring in Sean O'Shea from Global News. Sean, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So, we know that there's a man in Ontario who takes his vehicle to a dealership for a repair and then is able to find out that it didn't just stay at the dealership. What happened? Mike, uh, a customer of a Nissan dealership north of Toronto took his vehicle, where he bought the vehicle actually, took it because he had a problem with the backup camera. They said, we have to look after it for a couple, hold it for a couple of days, we'll give you a loan or no problem. The man had just got new insurance through CAA. One of the components of that was they put a gizmo into his vehicle, a transponder, which allowed them to track his vehicle, track his uh, speed, his distance, all those kinds of things. I had one of these in my vehicle for a while when I had an insurance uh, new company. And so what happened, though, is when he looked on there, just by happenstance, he saw that his vehicle that night was not at the dealership where he expected it to be but that it was, in fact, uh, in Woodstock, Ontario instead. And from the dealership to Woodstock is 90 kilometers. man called the police thinking, hey, my vehicle's been stolen. Police uh, in Halton region uh, had another police department near Woodstock go and find the vehicle, rap on the door, and uh, find out that it was, in fact, a dealership employee, a mechanic, who was driving his vehicle. And ostensibly, according to the dealership, uh, they wanted to road test his vehicle for this problematic backup camera. But there was a 180-kilometer round-trip trip that he'd taken. And as a result of this, the owner of the vehicle is asking a whole lot of questions. No doubt. Can you imagine this? I mean, let's think about it from a few perspectives. If you're driving, commuting in Toronto, you're putting a lot of mileage on your vehicle. You can sometimes get right up against a lease. We don't know whether this was a leased vehicle, but to think, hey, we'll just tack on another 180K, this can have some big ramifications. So he asked some questions. Did he find out any answers? More than more than uh, not getting answers, uh, Mike, what he got from the service manager the following day when he went back to say, hey, dude, where's my car? Uh, the, the service manager, he said, kicked him out of his office and said, uh, you have no business tracking our employee and calling the police. Now, can you imagine that? It's your vehicle. you got a tracking device in there that uh, happens to let you know this. You call the police because you're legitimately concerned that your car was just stolen, and then the dealership service manager gets mad at you because you call the police to try to track your vehicle. So no satisfaction. He went to, went to the dealer principal, the co-owner of the dealership, as I did. Uh, didn't really get an apology. Um, the dealer manager told me that, that he'd given his consent to take it out of town. The owner says he absolutely didn't give his consent. Why would, why would I give consent to the vehicle being driven 180 kilometers for my backup camera problem? And to your point, Mike, about insurance, the reason that this com- that he had this transponder put in his vehicle was so that the insurance company could see where he was going and what speed he was traveling. One of the things I didn't mention is that the speed of the trip between the dealership and Woodstock was over the speed limit almost the entire time. There's a 100-kilometer speed limit on the 401 there. And in fact, it reached 148 kilometers per hour 
for a period of a few seconds at one point. So the insurance company is getting all that information. They're looking at that going, hey, Frank, the owner of the vehicle, is not a very good risk because look at how he drives. And that's part of the problem here as well. The insurance company's got data that now shows him to be driving a certain way when he was not driving the car that way. This is wild. Global News reporter Sean O'Shea with us. Do you think this story continues on any further? Are we headed toward the courts? Uh, Probably not, because all... Mike, all this guy wanted was an explanation about why the vehicle was taken out of town. He wanted an apology, and he wanted his backup camera fixed, which, frankly, has still not been fixed. Uh, We contacted Nissan Canada. They've arranged for another dealership to look at the vehicle. But the point is that the damage has been done to an extent because of the insurance company data that's been provided. And you would think that a company that has care of your car would be straight up with you, would tell you that it's being taken out of town or ask you permission. The dealership owner told me, yes, he gave consent. He's absolutely adamant that he didn't. And why would you to have uh, a backup camera analyzed? Nobody needs to drive this thing, you know, 180 kilometers round trip and certainly not well above the speed limit. The threshold for stunt driving in Ontario is 50 kilometers over the limit. He was within two kilometers of that. It's not a good look for the dealer. It's not a good look for Nissan Canada. And it's unfortunate for the owner of the vehicle who now has basically a bad mark from an insurance perspective. Sean, thanks so much for doing this story, for uncovering the details and for presenting them. We really appreciate that. And thanks for the time today. Keep safe. Thanks very much. You too. All the best. And Sean O'Shea, Global News reporter. You can read the entire story at globalnews.ca. Thousands and thousands of views have come in on the story so far, but where do we go from here? Well, it, it may just wind up ending, but it's, it's one to know in terms of insurance transponders and everything else that comes along with them. The ability for us to know where people are or where our things are. You know what's crazy about it, though? We can know where people are. We can know where our things, like our cars, are. But you still can't find the remote in the couch. Uh, We have an opportunity right now to talk caffeine and ask some questions about caffeine. And joining us right now to help us out in the idea of is caffeine good, is it not good, where do we sit, is Chelsea Cross, registered dietitian. Chelsea, thanks so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Where do we sit on is caffeine good for the human body or is caffeine not good for the human body? Well, I think uh, caffeine definitely has become a culture, I'd say that. Uh, I think everyone uh, can agree they always have a pizza or coffee cup in their hand these days. But I think it's it's always a balance, right? I know people maybe have a hate-love relationship with the word balance, but a little bit of caffeine is not going to, you're not going to do negative things. And it can actually be beneficial. It's, it's helpful for almost like a nootropic feel, if you will, where uh, it helps with concentration. Um, you know, for some people, it helps them go to the bathroom. Um, and you know, some people just really enjoy a, a cup of coffee sometimes in the morning. Um, but I think what the problem is and where I kind of started off with that cultural thing is that people have taken it a little bit far. So we got, you know, they got for coffee in the morning and then maybe I have an energy drink later. And for those who lift, oh, I'm going to pop some pre-workout too. And unfortunately in caffeine, it actually is a very high stimulant for the body and the problem with that is that it kind of sets your body in this like fight or flight mode, which is not ideal. 
your body likes to be in a rested state as much as possible. We're not trying to run away from predators on a daily, on an hourly basis. Um, so you don't want to be consuming uh, something that puts your body in that same frame of mind, if that makes sense. So the problem is, is that we've kind of overstimulated our system and that can cause digestive issues. It can cause people with anxiety tendencies to have higher anxiety. It can cause sleeping issues. Um, there's a whole host of things. And then the other side of the, the case is that caffeine is adaptive. So over time, the actual um, ability to wake you up or kind of get that, uh, you know, refreshed feeling that your old cup of joe might have given you in the past is not really there anymore. And I think some people don't necessarily realize that you have to kind of cycle it a little bit and have periods where uh, maybe you need to take it out for a couple of days and then bring it back in so that you can actually have that um, that energy piece that it, it's supposed to give you or what we expect. Um, so there's a couple of caveats with, with caffeine, um, but you can definitely, of course, have it in moderation in, in a healthy way. But uh, I definitely think that a lot of the times we struggle with extremes where it's either I have some uh, or sorry, I have a lot or I have it not at all. Um, so I think we need to come back to a baseline and say, you know what, like a cup of coffee worth like a hundred mil or 150 mig, um, milligrams per day is, is pretty good. Um, but I think when people start uh, looking at their habits and they're rocking like 300 milligrams a day, I think at that point we need to maybe have a bit of a conversation. Chelsea Cross joining us, registered dietitian. Chelsea, before we close out, how about the difference between, say, a black coffee and a coffee where you say, I need three cream, whipped cream, half chocolate milk? Uh, are we turning our, our coffee sometimes into dessert? Uh, generally, yes. So a lot of those fancy drinks, you'll see definitely that the calories tend to rack up. Now, I never like to put labels, per se, on, like, good versus bad. But, of course, depending on people's goals, if they are looking to, um, you know, not have a huge caloric budget in their drinks, then just definitely be mindful that uh, what you put in your coffee is not neutral, right? It, it does have calories, and a lot of these fancy drinks from Starbucks definitely are uh, – they're definitely racking them up to make them extra sweet and extra tasty. Well, we really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us today about the way that caffeine works, and uh, we uh, we really hope that uh, that we can heed that everything in moderation advice and <laughs> find ways to to make it work, and maybe drop down to decaf every once in a while. It sounds like you're changing gears in a car. Yeah. Thanks so much, Chelsea, for the time. Please keep safe. Thank you. You as well. Thank you very much. We are talking with Chelsea Cross, registered dietitian. Let's talk about something that is very serious, and it's long-term care. It's end of life, and we hear so much about different things that involve our healthcare system. Coming out of this pandemic, if there is a healthcare related issue, you are going to have an ear. So what should the future of Canada's healthcare system be about? We can look at the issues we've had in long-term care. We can look at a number of different things. And we have the opportunity to do that right now with Sarah Watts-Reinert, who is the CEO of Polytechnics Canada. Sarah, thank you so much for being here. Oh, thank you. In healthcare, we have seen and continue to see 
some of the, the greatest tests of the system. And we need to applaud. Next week is Nurses Week. We need to applaud nurses. We need to applaud doctors. It was Doctors' Day last Saturday. All of the healthcare workers that are making the system go. But when we examine the system right now, and, and this pandemic certainly gives us an opportunity to do that, Sarah, it's so big. It is, it's so complicated. How do we tell what's working and, and what isn't? And that's a really good, I mean, it's a great question. I think that the, uh, the real difficulty is that, you know, as you say, we're, it's under a lot of pressure right now. The entire system is under pressure. And you, uh, you add that kind of pressure to any system. You're going to see the cracks. Um, I think from, from my perspective, it's a matter of looking at where those cracks are and looking for opportunities to perhaps address some of those, maybe because there's another pandemic around the corner, and hopefully that's not the case, but, but perhaps just because it's a, it's a great time to be able to say, we saw the cracks, we saw what was happening, now how, how can we address that and make sure that it's better going forward? One of the biggest cracks that we have seen develop, and it was there before, but now that crack is far more noticeable, is long-term care. Who initiates in order to make changes? Is this something that has to come from provinces? Is it something that comes from the federal government that, that can change some policy somehow? Is it a partnership? What do you think would work best? Well, I think that the, the main responsibility, and this is a, you know, a long-standing constitutional division of responsibility for healthcare, really rests with the, uh, with the provinces. But I think that this, uh, this is a bit of an opportunity to be able to say uh, we need better national standards. I mean, we have an aging population. Uh, we had you know, lots of people going into long-term care where the requirement was really on families to provide that backup and support. And when families were told don't come, the system, the, all of those cracks showed. You know? And I think that this is why it's an opportunity right now to start thinking about how do we bring the federal government into this conversation, start talking about national standards, talk about training, um, and really address some of those things that we've seen, um, I think, fall apart. We are talking right now with Sarah watts Reinert, who is the CEO of Polytechnics Canada, and you have involvement at polytechnic institutions in care for our seniors. What is that involvement, just so that, that we have that? Uh, really, I guess two areas. Uh, number one is around uh, training. So, you know, really being able to provide the uh, the training for personal support workers, uh, for practical nurses, um, for those frontline healthcare workers. And so, you know, you would see that kind of training going on at Fanshawe College, for example, where really we're talking about the the technicians, we're talking about the, you know, those ongoing support uh, structures, the support roles, uh, and doing the training. And then the other piece of it is is thinking about from an applied research perspective, and, and applied research is all about practical, right? It's all about, you know, what do we need to do to solve problems? What do we need to implement in terms of technology or processes or systems? And, uh, and really, they're in a great position to be talking about healthy aging and, uh, and the training that goes into uh, what's necessary there, as well as all of the, uh, as well as, you know, the system itself. 
when we look at, at how the training works now, do you think we are putting people into the workforce who have those tools that they need, or are they getting to the workforce and having to learn more about, hey, I, I didn't realize this would be such a major part of the job? You know, I think that the, the real problem is there's not a whole lot of standards around that training. So, you know, when I when I look at the kind of training that is available at the polytechnic institutions across the country, you know, I'm really seeing that these are, you know, the they're the hands-on experiential um, opportunities that are part of that training are a good preparation, not just in theory, but in practice so that people are, you know, hitting the workforce well-trained, well-certified, and they have that, uh, that experience that they need. But, you know, we don't see the same thing across all training providers. Uh, and the truth is that some training for, for people in long-term care is, you know, it's a couple of days. It's, you know, let's, let's put somebody who says they want to take care of, um, of our aging population, Let, let's put them in place with actually very little training, uh, very little understanding of what is required, and then a tragedy happens, a crisis happens, and and they they really just don't have the preparation. So I think my argument is really around that kind that what we are seeing happen within the the publicly funded post secondary um, polytechnics is the kind of training that is required to be able to overcome some of the um, the shortfalls and sort of the ad hoc nature of training right now. Sarah watts Ronard with us, CEO of Polytechnics Canada, as we look at ways to improve our healthcare system. And one of the big cracks that has developed has certainly been in long-term care. And if we look at, at training, where does that need to go? It was last year maybe a little earlier than right now, but right around this time where we had at least the provincial government in Ontario saying, don't worry, here's what we're going to do. We're, we're going to get students and we're going to put them into those long-term care homes. And it was a rah, rah, rah. It was like being at a pep rally. And yet you look at that and you think, well, well, just a second. Um, if you've got people who are not quite finished and are getting that accelerated entry into healthcare fields, what do you think that did? Was that okay? Did that go okay? You know, I think that it went okay for people who were just about to uh, just about to be certified, just about to be able to move into roles. And I'll tell you why I think that was probably a, a good move is because if, if someone's had the training and all along through their training, they've had hands-on opportunities. They've had chances to actually work in in the sector. I think that they come to that with a level of confidence and competence that is it's not difficult to see how those how those folks would really have that smooth transition into the workforce. When you start to, you know, make a make decisions like that that perhaps, you know, we need more people, so let's just, you know, throw them through a really um short-term uh training and and throw them in, um I think that the difficulty is but do you know that personal protective equipment is required um, in in a role in a in a situation like this? I think that that's where it starts to fall apart a little bit. Is like what is the what's the level of background? And so I think that there had to be some some really some well thought out. Okay, now who is ninety percent of the way there, and and who are we just throwing in because we need bodies? 
If we look at, at one final component of this, Sarah, sometimes with the way the technology works right now, training's awfully difficult because you can train someone how to do something and then they arrive and instead of, you know, for example, if, if we were teaching somebody social media, a couple of years ago it might have been, well, here's how you use Facebook. And now you get there and you know how to use Facebook, but what, 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 we're using TikTok now. And you think, I, I don't know what TikTok is. I don't know how to use this. We've seen... So much happened remotely over the pandemic that seems to have opened doors, and we also know that things are going to be happening in a, in a more digital fashion. How do we incorporate those two things based on what we've learned from the pandemic? I think that if we look at, if we look at what the pandemic has really shown us is that for the most part, post-secondary education can be delivered remotely when it needs to be. Uh, but I think that what we're, what you would hope for is an education system that is providing experiential learning opportunities, is well connected to what's going on in, in any industry sector right now, and then trying to provide those you know, that digital infrastructure, the, the simulation, the, um, the augmented and virtual reality, the, the opportunities to, to try something in a way that is very tangible. Uh, and that requires, that requires the kind of education that is, is always changing. It's always evolving and it's very, very flexible to the needs of industry. I mean, obviously that's what we talk about in terms of what, uh, Canada's polytechnics can provide because of those close connections. You would never get, uh, you'd never get surprised by TikTok. <laughs> That's at least very heartwarming to hear. No one should ever be surprised by TikTok. Uh, Sarah, <laughs> thanks so much for all of your time today and all of the expertise. We really appreciate it. Please keep safe. Thanks. You too. That's Sarah Watts-Reinard, CEO of Polytechnics Canada, looking at what we need to know, how we need to do things coming out of the pandemic when it comes to long-term care, when it comes to training, what is happening, how are people being equipped going into situations, how can we make that better, and then you look at what we've learned, the remote aspect. How much of that stays after we are finished with this pandemic? You've been listening to the London Live Podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3.